Now we uh, have gone through this season of Advent, sort of exploring Advent, the season and the themes, through the lens of some of our favorite Christmas carols, some of those, our favorite hymns. Uh, we've done O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We've talked about O Holy Night and What Child Is This? And our last stop today uh, is perhaps one of the most, uh, one of the most glorious exaltations uh, celebrating the birth of Christ, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And as we prepare to get into that, let me invite you to first pray with me. Gracious and loving God, in this time and in this place, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable, be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we just pray that you would truly speak to us in this time, that through these words that I have prepared and your ancient words of Scripture, that Lord, we would hear your voice and truly discern your message. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's, it's always been funny to me, ironic really, the, the power of religious hymns and the, and the fact that they can sometimes touch us in ways that we, we never even imagined. Sometimes I think that they are a wonderful example of, of God's sense of humor. And it certainly is the case with the song that we celebrate today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the one that, that Credo just shared with you so beautifully. Uh, it's been one of our favorites since it was first published back in 1753, but really the story starts earlier than that. It actually starts when the song was originally written back in 1739 by Charles Wesley. Now, you, you know Charles Wesley. Charles and his brother John, the, considered to be our, kind of our spiritual forefather, John, the, the founder, the, the father of, of modern Methodism. But the irony is, is that um, uh, although they're credited with that, that they really never intended for that to happen. John especially never intended to start a new denomination. Instead, he and Charles were priests in the Church of England, and what they desired with their Methodist movement was to reform the Church of England, to, to revitalize it, to, to lead a revival to a new piety and a new passion within the church. John was the preacher, Charles was the hymn writer. And, and, and Charles was a prolific hymn writer, you might say. From the time of his conversion, he almost immediately began writing hymns, and he wrote them anywhere and everywhere. He was even said to write them on horseback as he went from, from place to place, oftentimes stopping and running into a, a house that he ran across, asking for paper and pen so that he could quick get something down on paper before it escaped him. In fact, he wrote over the course of his life, he wrote more than 6,000 hymns. And the funny thing is, is he didn't like people tinkering with them. In fact, at the beginning of one of his hymnals, Charles Wesley wrote this. He said, many gentlemen have done my brother and me the honor to reprint many of our hymns. Now, they are perfectly welcome to do so, provided that they reprint them just as they are. But I desire they would not attempt to mend them, for they are really not able. None of them is able to mend either the sense or the verse. Therefore, I must beg of them these two favors, either to let them stand just as they are, to take things for better or worse, or to add to the true readings in the margin or at the bottom of the page that we may no longer be accountable either for the nonsense or the doggerel of other men. Pretty pointed, right? And for the most part, those who used and who reprinted Wesley's hymns did so pretty much word for word. But there was there's one notable exception. You see, Charles Wesley's good friend, the American evangelist George Whitfield, 
really took a liking to the song that heralded the birth of Christ and did so in such a passionate and, and wonderful way. But he was troubled by the way the song began. You see, the way Charles wrote the opening song, the opening line, it went like this. Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. And while Whitfield loved the song, and he knew what welkin was, it was an English word that referred to the vault of heaven, he also knew enough of the big picture to know that no one in the colonies would know what that word meant. And so he sat down and reworked that first line to give us the song that we know today. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Because sometimes in the hands of a master, that which we consider to be a blessing can truly become indeed that and can truly become a blessing to others. You know, sometimes I think that's the hardest part of our faith journey. It's the hardest part about following God is that we don't always see the big picture. We don't always know how we fit in to that bigger picture. We don't always appreciate a blessing for what it is because sometimes the blessing doesn't really feel like a blessing at the time. And, you know, I can't help but think that that's what Mary had to be feeling. In fact, I chuckle every time I, I read Luke's story because it's, it's so outrageous. It's almost preposterous. And I think we, we sort of lose that because we get so caught up in the, in the miracle and the majesty of the, of the baby in the manger but if we, if we go back to the story, not, not the angelic pronouncements, not the shepherds, not the, not the manger, but if we go back to the beginning of the story, where we first meet Mary, where Mary is first introduced, and she's just a, a young woman, a girl, really, and she's visited by an angel, and the angel tells her that something wonderful is about to happen. The angel says, you, Mary, have found favor with God. You are blessed because you are going to become pregnant. You're going to have a baby. And this baby will, will grow up to do miraculous things, literally grow up to change the world. But first, you have to have the baby. And you see, there's, well, there's a little problem with that. The biggest problem is, is that Mary isn't married but it's even worse than that, you see. She's engaged. She's engaged in a culture which required she and her, her husband-to-be to essentially live as husband and wife for the better part of a year in every way except one. They were to live as husband and wife in every way except to share physical intimacy. And so when Mary turns up pregnant... She's got a huge cultural problem. Because one of two things have to be true, right? Either she has been unfaithful to the man who she has pledged to marry, or she and her husband-to-be have been engaging in activity that they ought not to have been engaging in. And either way, 
She is going to bring shame, dishonor on herself and on her family in a culture where honor was everything. She's going to bring dishonor to Joseph and his family. And really the only way for him to reclaim that honor is to divorce her, to dismiss her, and to do so in a very public way. Now, of course, Joseph chooses to stay with her. But needless to say, we know what, well, we know what small towns are like, right? Mary is destined to be the town pariah, the one that everybody looks at, stares at, whispers about behind her back. There's a, a wonderful scene in the, that movie, The Nativity Story, that came out a, a few years ago, maybe about 10 years ago or so. It's not really the best of movies. It moves very slow, but there's a wonderful scene as, as Mary and Joseph are leaving Nazareth on their way to Bethlehem. And as Joseph leads the, the donkey out of town with a very pregnant Mary sitting on the back, it flashes to the, the houses as they pass along the way, and, and everyone is either peeking out of the house, and when they make eye contact, they quick close the shutters or close the doors. And Mary said, well, I guess they're not going to miss us very much, are they? You have found favor with God. You are blessed. Really? <laughs> I mean, all evidence to the contrary, right? And I think that's what makes the story so incredible. It's what makes Mary's faith so incredible. Because knowing all of that, knowing what it was going to cost her, knowing the high price that this blessing was going to extract, Mary said yes. Mary acquiesced. Mary said, let it be with me as you have said. Let this happen. Mary said yes. Incredible faith. And yet I think the real faith is what comes later. It's what comes in that passage that, that Carla shared with us a few moments ago. It's, it's called the Magnificat, Mary's song. And it's the song that she sings when she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and, and Elizabeth basically confirms everything that the angel has told her. The, the miraculous baby that, that Elizabeth herself is carrying leaps in her womb. And Mary sings. She sings with joy. And it's not that, that we don't empathize with everything that Mary is experiencing. We know, right? We know how, how scared she must be, how stressed out she must be. We can follow Mary through the story and, and know the difficulties that she faces, the fear she has as, as her son literally turns the religious world inside out, as her son becomes the, the, the pariah of the best religious minds of his day, becomes the, 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 the person feared and hated by the reigning government. And eventually Mary will find herself at the base of a Roman cross as her son hangs above her, dying as a criminal, as an enemy of the state. And yet, Mary sings. Mary knows the difficulties she's going to face far better than we understand. And yet Mary chooses 
to sing. Mary chooses joy. And the funny thing is we don't, we don't think about joy like that very often. Most of the time when we think about joy, we, we think about it in terms of an emotion, kind of like we think about love, just as erroneously. We think about joy as a, as a reaction to what's going on around us. When everything's great, when the answer is yes, when everything is coming up roses, we respond with joy. But that's, that's not real joy, you see. That's simply a reaction, a cause and effect relationship because as, as soon as the answer becomes no, as soon as things start to fall apart, as soon as things aren't going our way, then our response will be anger, fear, despair, hopelessness, all the, all the other emotions that stand in stark contrast to joy. But real joy is not an emotion. It is a choice. And despite all the hardships that Mary is going to face, and again, she knows those far better than we do, despite all of the difficulty she's going to have, despite all this is going to cost her, despite the fact that this is going to turn her world upside down and inside out, Mary chooses to sing. And she chooses to sing with joy. Did you hear it? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the loneliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. It's a wonderful reminder of the power of making that choice, of choosing joy. Now, I know that that's sometimes easier said than done, and I'm in no way suggesting that we all walk around as naive automatrons and become those people who simply say, well, I know everything will work out. I have a, a friend of mine, a good friend. I've known her for about 12 years, I guess. Her name is Chris, and we used to work together. We worked together for about five years. And we had this, this little exchange every single time we saw each other, which was practically every day. I would say, Chris, how are you? And she would say, I'm awesome. And I would roll my eyes and say, whatever. Because I knew that there were days that she was not awesome. I knew that there were days that she was, that she was stressed out, that she was, that she was having trouble with getting something done with her, with her job, or, or that she was worried about her, her daughter, or worried about how her son was doing in school, or she had a fight with her husband, or, or whatever. I knew that there were days that she was decidedly not awesome. And I finally told her that one day. And her response was simply this. She said, I'm awesome because I choose to be awesome. She said, every day when I wake up, I get to decide what my baseline is. I get to decide what my default position is, and I choose awesome. And the funny thing is, is that Chris Cutler is one of the happiest most content, most peaceful people that I know. And I can guarantee you without any doubt that anyone who knows her would say the same thing. 
Because she chooses awesome. She chooses joy. And so I guess that's really the question that we're left with on this final stop on our Advent journey. It's a question, I think, that that matters more, not just this time of year, but this year. Particularly this time of this year. As we are facing yet another holiday that's going to look and feel very different than what we envisioned. Certainly very different than what we wanted. A holiday that that will be absent of of many of the traditions that, that help make a holiday what it is. And it's easy for us to become discouraged. It's easy for us to fall into despair. Or we can choose to celebrate. We can choose joy despite the hardships. Mary chose joy. And I think we can agree that it not only made the difference in her life, but it literally became part of the fabric that changed the world. And so what will we choose? Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, as we near the end of this Advent journey, we just look with, with hopeful anticipation, not toward the end of the journey, but truly that turning point in the journey that begins a new one, that point where, where that story truly becomes our story and you beckon us in. Lord, just help us to finish our preparations that we truly might be ready to step into that journey once again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.